If you would, open your Bibles to Galatians, again, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you're joining with us on campus, uh, please look underneath your seat or underneath the seat you're sitting in. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1076. Uh, the words will be on the screen as well, but we would love for you to not only use that Bible today, but please take that Bible home with you uh, as you leave and just enjoy uh, God's Word. Uh, we're going to dive right in and uh, get, get trucking along, uh, but I think it's important for us to understand a little bit of context of where we're at this morning in verses 1 through 7. Uh, last week, as we looked at Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, uh, we were reminded of the importance of, of, of Christ, but really... If we look at the book of Galatians as a whole, everything is pointed to Christ, just like all of the scripture is, right? Remember, Paul and Barnabas went to the province of Galatia. They shared the gospel. Lives were changed. Churches were planted. Uh, pretty much right after they left, these false teachers were coming in and saying, yes, uh, you need Jesus. So again, it's not an outright denial of Jesus, but you need more than that. You need works of the law. You need circumcision. There's things that you have to do in order to be right with God and remain right with God. And so Paul has been unpacking over and over again with great grace and relentless pursuit that no, that is wrong. And last week we saw the, the important truths that come with the fact that when we have union with Christ, in other words, by grace through faith, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, he says that we are sons. Now the scripture again is not pro-male and anti-female. The reason why uh, the scripture says sons and not daughters or children in this particular context is because it was the son who inherited uh, from the father. And so whatever the father had, the son would inherit. And so uh, Paul is reminding us, God's word is reminding us that every single one of us, when we have union with Christ, we are considered sons. We are co-heirs with Christ, right? And that is important. So all the spiritual blessings that God has for his children are ours, right? Why? Because we are sons, right? And so this is a spiritual truth that we need to be reminded of. And because we have union with Christ, we are one with one another, right? That, that we are one with one another. It, it doesn't matter uh, if uh, what our race is. It doesn't matter if we're male or female. It doesn't matter if, if we, uh, what social status we have. We are equal at the cross, right? We are equally sinners before the Lord. We are equally in need of the grace of the gospel, and it's the grace of the gospel that has uh, the ability and the only ability to make man, woman, child right with God, right? The, to satisfy the wrath of God, to experience real, real uh, new life in Christ, and because of that, we have blessing, spiritual blessing. We looked at Ephesians chapter 1 specifically verses 3 through 14 that talk about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and that's just a portion of it. Now the Apostle Paul continues that thought. Again, he's challenging and reminding the Christians there in Galatia, do not lose sight of the beauty of the gospel. And the same is true for us. And so Paul keeps just pouring on, pouring on truth after truth after truth. And this morning, we're going to look at uh, four more truths concerning just everything hinges on the promised seed. And who is that promised seed? It is Jesus Christ himself, right? And, and, and because that is true... Here's what we find about the, the work of Christ. We find in our passage this morning, this first thing, that Jesus came at the perfect time. Jesus came at the perfect time. We see this uh, specifically in the first, uh, first 
four verses. We'll look at verses 1 and 2, unpack it, and then we'll look at verses 3 in the first part of verse 4. Verse 1 and 2, it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So to the original hearer, they would have understood exactly what Paul is doing. So Paul is giving an illustration here. And, and the, uh, the illustration is reminding us of this, that in this particular culture, uh, the, the, the son would get the inheritance from the father, right? But in this particular case, he is called a child, right? That means he's too young to, res- to take possession of it. In other words, everybody in the house knows that he is the heir to be, but because of his age... He does not have all those resources yet. He has not experienced the blessing of that inheritance. So he has guardians and managers that take care of that for him. Until what? Until a date set by the father. When that earthly father determines when that son is old enough to receive that inheritance, that's when he physically experiences it. Now, Paul is going to take that and make a spiritual truth with that. How do we know? Look at verse 3. In the same way... We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, the elementary principles of the world is talking about, really, man's attempts to be right with God, right? That's all that Paul has been talking about over the past several weeks. That, that man, doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, right? We all are conditioned the same way, right? We want to be right with God, and so what do we do? We do works righteousness, right? And we want to bring about value. We want to bring about approval. We want to bring about acceptance. We go about it in different ways. But at the end of the day, prior to our relationship with Christ, we are enslaved to what? Our ability to try to make ourselves worthy, right? And guess what? That is an enslaving life. And every single one of us, prior to our relationship with Christ, was right there. And so Paul says, just like this child, you and me, and he himself, prior to our relationship with Christ, were enslaved to the religious attempts of being right with God. But there's grace, right? The beauty of the gospel, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, Jesus came at the perfect time. Now, there are several uh, debates on why that was the perfect time. Uh, for instance, some will say because it was culturally the right time. Uh, right? Uh, the Roman Empire had a common language, con- common uh, economy, uh, co- or currency, common roads, right? Uh, some will say politically it was the perfect time because uh, most of the world was under Roman peace, right? For the most part, uh, there was great peace in the world. Uh, some would say that uh, theologically it was the right time, right? The law had done what the law was supposed to do. The law was to expose man's sin, it, uh, reflect the very holiness of God and the fact that we can't do it. So there's a, a spiritual component there for sure, uh, where uh, really, remember those 400 years of silence between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, uh, there's like this spiritual hunger. And I think this is important. I think there's a spiritual hunger, not just for the Jewish people, but there is a spiritual hunger for the Gentile people, right? But God has implanted in us a hole that can only be filled by him. And so apart from Christ, we live searching, tirelessly searching for meaning and purpose, approval, love, all those different things. Again, we go about it at different ways, but at our core, we were designed to worship God, right? And yet we fill those things with all these idols. So we don't know 
which one of these things are true or how they're true as far as the perfect time, but this is what we do know. God knew when it was the perfect time. So God, from the very beginning, is setting the stage for what? Jesus' entrance into this world. And because of that, everything begins to change. So Jesus came at the perfect time. Not only that, Jesus came in the perfect way. Verse 4, the second part of verse 4, is some of the richest verses when we think about uh, Jesus Christ himself. Listen to what it says in the first, uh, second part of verse 4. It says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So let's unpack those three statements for just a minute. Uh, God sent forth his son, right? This is God's doing, right? That, that, that means that, that Jesus was in a different place, and now he's in a different place, right? He, he's coming to earth. But the fact is that God sent forth his son. It reminds us that Jesus is what? He's 100% who? He's 100% God. He's 100% divine. And I love how Paul expresses this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know the character of God, you look at who? You look at Jesus Christ himself. God is, or Jesus is God in the human flesh. He is God's son. He is the firstborn of all creation, the scripture says. That means he's the creator of all things. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So not only did he create all things, but all of creation is for his purpose, right? For his glory. Verse 17, and he is before all things. In other words, he existed before anything was created. He's eternal. And in him all things hold together. Aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all things? All those pieces he holds together and the authority of his hands, right? But it says he's also born of a woman. This talks about the fact that Jesus is 100% man. He, he has humanity, right? And if any of y'all are looking for a, a good tagline on your next date, and you're just trying to show how smart you are, when you take the divinity of God and the humanity of God, the, the word that is used is the hypostatic union, all right? So if you really just want to impress that date, you just start talking about that. What have you been reading? I've been reading about the hypostatic union of Christ. Right? Well, what is that about? You can share the gospel, right? So that's important. Uh, so the humanity of Christ. So think about the fact that Jesus experienced many, if not all, the things that you and I experience today, right? He was sleepy. He, he ate food. He laughed. He cried. Uh, he had to go to work, right? I mean, all those different things. He experienced suffering and sadness. Uh, he had family drama, friend drama, you know, all those different things. He can relate to us, but how did Jesus live his life? I think one word sums it up with great humility. Great humility. We see this in uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. And again, Paul is instructing uh, Christians to have this same mind as well. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And how is this mind with Jesus? He says, who, through, who though he, speaking of Jesus, was uh, in the form of God, that means he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he didn't have to parade those things around. He knew who he was, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he, in humility, Jesus takes on humanity, right? He takes on flesh and the effects of all the flesh that we have in this world, right? Uh, he did not have to, uh, tr again, parade his deity around. He simply became a man. Scripture says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus had every right, every authority, every power to do something different, but he humbled himself to the will of the Father, right? So we see tremendous humility in Christ, but then the scripture says he's born under the law. And this refers to the fact that Jesus is 100% righteous. In other words, just like you and I uh, are held to the same standards of God 
Jesus himself was held to the same standards of God, right? He's under the standard of perfection. But there's a huge difference, right? We can't do it. Jesus 100% did. He lived the perfect life. Though he was tempted in every way, just like you and I, he never sinned. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. How do we know? Scripture says in verses 9 through 11 of Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is what? Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In other words, when we think about uh, the deity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, and the perfection of Jesus, there's none like him, right? And that's a great thing. He's the only one qualified to do what you and I desperately need, right? He is the only one. And so everything, again, is pointing to Jesus Christ. He came at the perfect time. He came in the perfect way. And then the third thing that we see this morning is that Jesus demonstrated God's perfect love. Right? So this is, this is the reason why he came. There's a, a, a purpose, and it's a perfect purpose. And we see that in verse 5. The scripture says, To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus came to redeem us. Why? Because we were under the law. Now think about the word under for just a minute. Just in the book of Galatians, the scripture says that we are under the law, under a curse, under sin, under a guardian, under the elementary principles of the world. All those things are not good, right? And yet Jesus comes, he redeems us. He pays the penalty for our sin debt, right? He, he purchases us out of slavery and brings us into uh, freedom. He, he purchases, uh, absorbs the full wrath of God, right, on our behalf. He is the, he receives the condemnation that you and I deserve. We saw that in Galatians 3.13 where the scripture says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Not only did Jesus pay our sin debt, but he is the final sacrifice. Nothing else is necessary, right? Do you realize how much God loves you today? The scripture says uh, in 1 John 4, and this, the love of God has, was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus is the substitute. And because Jesus is the substitute, God is satisfied, right? Every day as a child of God, you can walk and know that God is satisfied because of Jesus Christ. Not only that, we're adopted into God's family. Remember what the scripture said in the second part of verse 5. So that we might, what, receive adoptions, adoption as sons. Again, not only are we right before the judge, right? But we are loved by him, right? That's, that's a huge blessing that we have in Christ. So not only in God's court of law are we legally right, but we are lavishly loved. That's a beautiful truth. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I love that last phrase. So we are. Now think about this love. When John says what kind of love this is, he's meaning, I've never seen anything like it. There is no love like the love of God, right? And what does he say? It's, it's given to us. It's poured out on us, lavished over us. It's not even just poured out on us, but it's embedded in us. We have the love of God in our hearts. And the scripture says that 
that, that we are His. We bear the name of Christ. So it doesn't matter what happens in this life, what the circumstances are, where the frailty lies in our life, we go back to the fact that we are what? We are God's children. And so we are. It's a place of tremendous truth. It's an indicative. This is who you are, even though sometimes we don't feel like it. And the beauty is, not only are you his child now because of the work of Christ in your life, but you will for always be a child of God because of the work of Christ in your life. So Jesus demonstrated God's perfect love. Fourth, Jesus, the perfect gift, means hope for you. There's tremendous hope in the gospel. Right? And we are reminded of the hope that we have in the gospel through the Spirit's work in our life. And that's one of the blessings that we have with Christ. The scripture says in verses 6 and 7 of Galatians 4, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out what? Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then a, the heir through God. Now think about this for just a minute. Where the law of God was written on, the heart, on our hearts to obey, the love of God was written on our hearts through his spirit. So again, the law of God is now we're, we're receiving the love of God. And it says that we can cry out, Abba, Father. That is a, a phrase of intimacy, a, a phrase of a relationship. And can anybody remember when Jesus cried out those two words, Abba, Father? It was during his most desperate and darkest time. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says in Mark 14, verses 35 and 36, and going a little farther, he, speaking of Jesus, fell on the ground and prayed out, or prayed that if, there were, if it were possible, the hour might pass through him, that, power, that hour that's getting ready to come, the full wrath of God placed on him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus cries out to his father in a time of great desperation. You know what that means for you and I today? You know why you and I have hope today? That just like Jesus crying out to his father in his time of great desperation, you and I can do the same thing. We see this in Romans 8, Romans 8 uh, verses 14 through 17. Paul says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So this life will have suffering, right? But in the midst of those times of desperation, whatever that looks like for you, we have, because we are adopted in his family, we have hope that we can Cry out to our Heavenly Father, knowing this, that He will never, ever abandon us, right? The God's Word tells us that He will never, ever abandon us. In other words, we have nothing to fear. Why? Because He is our Heavenly Father. He holds our hand. Think about a relationship between uh, an earthly father and their child, right? Think about this. He holds our hands when we are unable to stand, right? Just envision that little hand. That little hand of dependency being held by a father. Just get that image for just a moment. The father holds our hand when we cannot stand. The father holds our hand when we are unable to see, right? Think about those pictures of just being a parent. He holds our hands when we are in need of that gracious reminder that he loves us. He is with us always. So just, he holds our hand when we have nothing else to hold on to. 
we hold on him. Adoption reminds us that we can trust the Father's heart for us. So he came at the perfect time. He came in the perfect way. He came to demonstrate God's perfect love. And because of that perfect gift of Jesus Christ, we have hope. So what is our application this morning? Our application, and I just want to run through some verses just to help us, because I believe this will help uh, us understand the importance and the beauty of uh, our relationship with Christ and what that means as far as adoption. Uh, so our takeaways, first one this, receive your adoption. Receive your adoption. The gift of adoption must be received through faith, right? And I want to use uh, Luke 15 as a way to illustrate this. Again, it's not a, a one-to-one correlation with this, but I do think it gives us some helpful truths on why it's important to receive adoption. In other words, and receive the blessing of what it means to be in the Father's home, right? And in Luke 15, we are encountered with two, two brothers, right? There's an older brother and a younger brother. Uh, the younger brother says, God, or Father, I, in many ways, I wish you were, I want you dead. I want my inheritance now, right? Because the inheritance didn't come until the father passed away. So the father gives the inheritance in this particular time. Uh, two-thirds of the inheritance went to the older brother. One-third of the inheritance went to the younger brother. What did the younger brother do? He left home, right? And he, he lived rebelliously. He did his own thing. He squandered all that he had. And the scripture begins, uh, we'll read in verse 17, where the scripture says, but when he, speaking of, of the younger brother, he came to himself. Now, I think it's important to understand that phrase there, came to himself. In other words, God was intervening in his life, and in the midst of that intervention, the younger brother came to his senses, right? There's something better than what I'm doing, right? And the scripture says that he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He, he lost it all, Right? He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and did what? He felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, is, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see, I think there are many here today that are not receiving the blessing of being adopted into the family of God because you're, you feel like you're too far gone. That you, you cannot come back as a son. You cannot enter into the home. You have to stay outside and just be a servant or a slave. Listen, by the grace of God, through faith, receive that adoption. But there's another son, right? There's an older son. We see something here in verse 25. The scripture says, Now his older brother was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. And the, the better translation there, I have served you, is I have slaved for you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
He has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, so this is the father speaking, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and it is found. You see, the, the older brother was not receiving the blessing of being in the father's house. He equated the relationship with slavery and working instead of just saying, I'm your son. I'm your son. And I think that happens as well. How many of us feel like we have to, to work and slave in order to be right with God and to receive blessing from God? And God simply says, first and foremost, you are my son. You are my son. Receive your adoption. Second, rejoice in your adoption. Rejoice. Because of Jesus, we have full, uninterrupted access to the Father. Right? Why? Because he's our true elder brother. That's what we see uh, in Luke 15, that Jesus is our true elder brother. The scripture says in Hebrews 4, uh, beginning in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So Jesus is our great high priest, right? Uh, and, and the scripture says that he sympathizes us. That, that means that he, he comes alongside us in our suffering. Why? Because he himself has suffered. He has experienced the frailty of this world. And yet, the difference is, Jesus did it without sinning, right? So he understands our brokenness. He understands our difficulties in this life. And yet, because of Jesus Christ being our great high priest, we have full, uninterrupted access to the Father. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne, grace, throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The, word, uh, the phrase, draw near, is in the present tense, meaning daily, draw near to the Lord. Cling on to him. Hold fast to him. The scripture says that we are to do so in confidence, not arrogantly, not pridefully. We do it in confidence because of who we are in Christ, right? We have the same access to the Father as Jesus Christ has access to the Father. The very promises of God remind us that he, he is with us. So freely, continually, we can come to him in our time of need, and he will give us tremendous grace. And then lastly, we are to reflect God's heart for adoption. Reflect God's heart for adoption. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, says in James uh, chapter 1, verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, so we hear the word pure, which talks about clean, not, not polluted. We hear the word undefiled. It means not corrupted, not tainting, tainted, having no uh, fault. Uh, but Paul, or James uses the word religion, right? How do we understand the word religion? This is important because most often in the Greek language, the word religion is translated worship. So listen to the scripture with that. Worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This means that pure religion, pure worship of God is compassionate. How does, G, how does James illustrate that? That we are to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The word visit means to carefully care for them in their time of need. When they are afflicted with whatever that affliction is, that with great gospel compassion and first and foremost worship to the Lord, we meet them where they are and we show compassion towards them. We care for them. Why? Because God has always had a tremendous concern for the most vulnerable, right? Right? Not only that, a pure religion or pure worship is committed, committed to the things of God, not this world. That's what it is. And keep oneself unstained from the world. The world is the system that is in place 
where everything wants to remove God out, right? So in other words, the way that we live, the way that we think, is not to be influenced by the things of this world, but the things of God. So that our thoughts, our actions, our voice, what we say, points to who? God himself. Pure religion, pure worship of God is committed to the word of God and the compassion of God. In other words, pure religion reflects the very character of God. And we see this in Psalm 68, verse 5, in the first part of verse 6. The scripture says, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. And then it says, God settles the solitary in a home. That word solitary means lonely. How many lonely people need a home? And God says, pure worship. Shows compassion and is committed to his ways. And as a way of illustration, real quick, I want to show two pictures that will help just think about how God comes at the perfect time, perfect way, demonstrates perfect love, gives us hope. We receive adoption. We rejoice in adoption. We reflect that adoption. I want to just show two pictures that many of y'all were a part of. The first one is our first family picture when our family got back uh, from China when we adopted our little girl. I can't believe it's almost five and a half years ago. I can't believe it. Uh, But what a tremendous opportunity. And many of you were a part of that through prayer, through giving, through support uh, before we left and support after we left. Uh, but, But I think there's another picture that really grabs the emotional side of how beautiful adoption is. And that's the next page, our next picture. That's our daughter. She's 10 years old. And just the emotion. Why? Because she was just a part of the process as we were, all of our kids. And I guarantee you, if our kids were that age, they would have been doing the same thing. And it's a reminder to us that people matter, right? And God is calling us to get outside of the way that we oftentimes process the world, that this this world is for us, right? And forgetting the fact that because of the gospel, that we are here for what? This world. We are implanted where we are to make an impact for Jesus Christ. Why? First and foremost, because we are adopted sons of God. And so when you think about Jesus Christ and the importance that, that he is intervening in your life, right? He comes in the perfect way, or perfect time, right? And I think that's true. We experience the, the perfected time of Christ. And if that's where you're at today, you're in your place of desperation. Are you sensitive to the fact that Jesus is there? He comes in the perfect way. He is intervening in your life, right? The very fact that he demonstrates the pure love of God to you, right? And you have hope in Christ. And as a follower of Christ, every day, walk with the adoption that you have in him.